Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR-130-BL-115, Covetousness, Tenth Commandment, Exodus, X-20, Verses 17. Scripture is Exodus 20, verse 17, Covetousness. Exodus 20, verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. This morning we begin our studies in the Tenth Commandment, which we will study for the next month and a half. The epilogue to the law and then a study of the law throughout the Old and New Testaments will follow after we study the Tenth Commandment. The Tenth Commandment is perhaps the least understood of all the Ten Commandments. First of all, as it appears in Exodus, the verse which we just read, it has been a target for no small amount of misunderstanding. During the last century, the main concern of many people, and you still find this in modern writers and scholars, was that this commandment was an insult to womanhood. Why? Because it puts the neighbor's house above his wife, as though the house were more important than the wife. And the feminists of the last century raised quite a hue and cry about this particular verse. Well, the answer to that is a very simple one. The word which is translated as house in this particular version of the law is a general term. It means the home, the family, the household, the estate, so that it includes everything that is thy neighbor's. It includes his wife, it includes his farm, his property, his house, as we think of the word house. It includes everything. So what the law here is saying is, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, that is, anything that is thy neighbor's. And then goes on to specify his wife, his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. So the second half simply is a development of the first half, citing specifically everything that the first half covers. This is one great error concerning the law here. Another even greater one is that covet is understood to mean feeling, something within and it is limited to that. 
Now, it does indeed cover the thoughts of man. But how can you deal with the feelings of man in love? After all, the Ten Commandments give us law. You can legislate about murder and about theft and about false witness and adultery. But how are you going to legislate the feelings of man? How can it then be law? It can be moral law, but this is civil law. This is given to be a law for the nation. So the word covet very obviously means something more than desiring, lusting after something. The meaning is not newly discovered, although two German scholars in this century have written concerning the meaning. But it has been known through the centuries, and you can go back to the 16th 1600s, the Dr. Isaac Barrow, one of the greatest scholars of the Church of England, and he was teaching the meaning of covet from Scripture. Why the misunderstanding? Now, the word covet does include the thought of man, and pietism has obscured the rest of its meaning. Pietism was a movement that first sprang up in the Middle Ages which concentrated exclusively on the inner life of man to the exclusion of his outer life. And it sprang up again in the 18th and 19th centuries and is very much with us today. The emphasis in pietism is that your heart must be right, which is sound enough. But if your heart is right, your actions are right also. You cannot separate the two. And this is what pietism did. It separated the two so that the heart was right, therefore, if your actions were wrong, well, people just didn't understand you. If they only knew you better, they'd understand that your heart was right. And this is passed over from pietism into liberalism. And you get this in the idea that a criminal who commits fearful crimes can still be really a good man at heart if we only understood what made him do these things. That's secular pietism. And of course, political liberalism is secular pietism. What it wants you to do is not to change your actions, but to change your feelings and maybe put a statute law on the books. You don't do anything about it. So they make a lot of to-do about how we should love the Negro, whereas the average liberal has less to do with the Negro than anyone else. They just want everyone to get worked up on an issue, and when they're through with it, they'll go on to another issue. And so they've left the Negro now for ecology. It's all a matter of feeling, you see. And the crowds who went to Washington, D.C. to protest about pollution on Earth Day polluted Washington so much that it cost the federal government a sizable sum of money 
to clean up after them. They were concerned with feelings. They were pietists, secular pietists. And pietism wants your heart to be right, but it separates the heart of man from his action. Now what does covet mean? Covet does mean to desire. That is an aspect of its meaning. But it not only means to desire, but also to desire and to take. It means both. This is why Dr. Isaac Barrow said that it should be translated as deprive not or seize not thy neighbor's house, thy neighbor's wife. Do not take her illegally immorally. Now having said that, we must also add that covet is not necessarily bad in its meaning. The context determines whether covet is illegal, ungodly seizure or appropriation or godly seizure and appropriation. For example, in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 9, we have an example of the use of covet. It reads in the King James Version, Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness to his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of evil. The Berkeley Version renders it, Woe to him who acquires an evil gain for his house in order to set his seat on high, to be out of the reach of calamity. Now, the interesting thing is that Habakkuk has to use the word evil to make it clear that he's talking about the wrong kind of covetousness. He says, Woe to him that coveteth an evil covetousness. In other words, it's apparent from Habakkuk's usage that not all covetousness is evil. It can be a godly ambition, but not if you're coveting your neighbor's household, his property, his wife. Then it doesn't even need the modification of evil. Because the foregoing laws, commandments 6 through 9, have made it clear that these things are wrong. So that in the law, covet does not require at this point evil to modify it. Or to give another example. St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 31, used the word covet in its good sense. He said, but covet earnestly the best gifts. Now, obviously, he is using it in a very commendable sense, and he is telling people, 
aim hard for, desire and take the best gifts, the highest things in life. So it is wrong, as moralists have done for generations under the influence of pietism, to condemn covetousness as such. Basic to that has been the Greek idea that the holy man is passionless. He has no feelings. You know, among the ancient Greeks, the holy man was totally passionless. So that if he were sitting, and I'm giving you an example that they gave, if he were sitting, chatting with friends, and someone came up to him and said, your house just burnt down. He would say, well, it burnt down and continue with his conversation. And someone came up to him and said, your wife just dropped dead of a heart attack. He would not interrupt his conversation. He would say thank you and go on with his philosophical discourse. And if then they came up to him and said, your children were all killed in an accident, he would continue as though nothing had happened. He was passionless, above and those who have said that you should have no covetousness of any sort, good or bad, no ambition, no desire, have been following a Greek standard of morality. We are not called to be passionless. That standard is wicked. St. Paul makes it clear that we should covet, desire and take the best gifts, the better things of life. Thus Shakespeare was very, very wrong in expressing this kind of pietism when in his play he has Cardinal Wolsey say, I charge thee Cromwell, fling away ambition. For by that sin the angels fell. He was all wrong. All wrong. And we cannot follow that kind of standard without sinning. Clearly then, the commandment means an evil desiring and taking that which is not properly ours. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Thus, what the Tenth Commandment <clears throat> clearly condemns is every attempt to gain by fraud, coercion, or deceit that which belongs to our neighbor. One law that we had that reflected the old Puritan understanding of this commandment was the alienation of affection suits that used to go to court. They were much abused and they were made into something that was ridiculous, finally, by a godless age. And in the 20s, there were many, many of them that were really fraudulent. 
but the basic idea was that a man who alienated the affections of another man's wife was violating the law. And originally, it was not intended to be a civil suit, but a criminal suit. This law, therefore, forbids by expropriation, by fraud, by deceit, or even by legal means, that which belongs to our neighbor. The Tenth Commandment thus sums up Commandments 6 through 9 and gives them an additional perspective. Let's illustrate that. Now the other commandments deal with obviously illegal acts. Thou shalt not kill, nor commit adultery, nor steal, nor bear false witness. Those are clear-cut violations of the law. But let's examine such a case in the life of David, who violated the Tenth Commandment. He also, in the commission of that violation, violated others as well. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He wanted her for a wife. What did he do? He conspired with Joab, his cousin, who was general of the army, to launch an attack that would be a foolhardy attack on a particular city. It would very obviously go wrong. And then to issue a retreat. He knew that at that point Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, being the kind of man he was, would not retreat. and he would be killed. And that's exactly what happened. What they did in that case was not legally to kill the man, illegally that is, they didn't violate the law, they didn't go out and kill a man in such a way that the commandment thou shalt not kill was broken. It was all within the law. And yet it was murder. They were using Uriah's character to kill him. Their entire action in planning that advance and then the retreat was fraudulent. It was based on covetousness that was evil. And therefore, the Tenth Commandment covers every such case. In other words, it covers cases that cannot be covered strictly by Commandments 6 through 9. There are many uses of the law in terms of this fraudulent use of law to defraud or to harm. As we shall see in subsequent weeks, socialism is based upon this fraudulent use of the law to break the law. 
There are thus legal means of seizing what is our neighbor's, which the Tenth Commandment clearly forbids. This is why the Tenth Commandment is so important an addition to the law. And without an understanding of the Tenth Commandment, there is no way that people can be armed to fight against the kind of thing that is prevailing today on the state, county, city, and federal levels. The use of the law to seize and to take that which belongs to our neighbor. Thus, the Tenth Commandment is directed not merely against individuals, but also against states, churches, institutions. All can and do use legal means to further injustice and fraud. And how frequently we have seen churches and institutions and the government using legal means to rob people, to deprive them of their rights, and then to turn around and say, but it was all perfectly legal, you had your day in court, and this is a law-abiding country and we want the rule of law. So shut up and sit back. Thus the law, the Tenth Commandment, by its legislation against evil covetousness, is a law of especial importance in the 20th century as well as in every age. We shall see in subsequent weeks how timely the Tenth Commandment is. Let us pray. <clears throat> Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy law word, and we thank Thee that Thy word covers our every condition, our every need. And we beseech thee, our Father, to so teach us thy law and to write it upon the tables of our hearts that we might in all our ways acknowledge thee, show forth thy righteousness, and become thine instruments to the reestablishing of thy government over men and nations. Our God, we thank thee that thou hast called us to be thy people and commissioned us with so great a commission. Make us in all things faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Are there any questions now, first of all, with respect to our lesson? Yes. How ambitious are we to be in business? Yes. How ambitious are we to be in business when our neighbor is also in business for profit? Now the answer to that is, as long as our business is conducted in a godly manner, without fraud, and without any lawless use of the law, we have the right to be as ambitious as we see fit. Some years ago, 
a very, very outstanding man, as law-abiding as any man I've ever known, meticulous in that respect, was severely criticized because when a competitor opened up near him, after a while, he ran that man out of business. He cut costs. Uh, he worked hard with several sales to run the man out of business in a way that he did not with other competitors. And he told me in his old age, he said, that's the one thing that people still hold against me. But he said, I think I did that man a favor. And he said, I did it because I felt it was my duty to run him out of business. He was not a good businessman. He had no capacity for management. In other lines of work where he went later, he was successful. But he said he was involving more and more of his friends and relatives in his business in the confidence that he was going to make money for them. And he said, I felt I had a duty to run him out of business, and I did. And he said, I don't think I did anything wrong. I just lowered the boom on him a few years and a few hundred thousand dollars sooner. Well, I think the man had a real point. There's nothing wrong in being ambitious. There's nothing wrong in making money, all the money you can, provided you do it in a godly manner and you are a good steward thereby. And there's no harm in competing with others. There's nothing morally wrong in competition, provided it's godly competition. Actually, as this man also stated, he said, a small operation can always outcompete a larger operation if it is efficiently run, because there is less in the way of labor costs and problems. The bigger you grow, the more your problems are. But he said a one-man operation can be efficient in a way that a bigger operation cannot be if it is properly handled. Yes. Uh, yes, there is. Envy is a matter of the mind and heart. It's an inner attitude. Covetousness has both the inner and the outer aspect. It means to desire and to take. So there is a real distinction there. Yes. This is a part of the pagan, the Greek attitude of passionlessness, of regarding the outer world and everything connected with it as wrong. They use the verse, the love of money is the root of all evil, and the answer there is it's the love of money, not money that is the root of all evil. It's the inordinate 
love. It is making an idol of money, loving that instead of God and your neighbor, your family, that constitutes evil. So that evangelicalism, as it has become uh, prone to this kind of pietism which wants to despise the things of this world, is altogether wrong. There is nothing ungodly, nor is there any ground in Scripture for saying that beautiful things are not to be desired, that lovely clothing, lovely hairdos, gold and silver are not to be desired. Now, the verse that they use with regard to that sort of thing is in Peter. And about a year and a half, two years ago, we touched on the meaning of that because I've heard sermons on this which condemn the uh, uh, condemn lovely hairdos and uh, jewelry and the like. The verse is 1 Peter 3, 2, when it speaks of the godly wife, whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of plaiting the hair or, and of wearing gold or of putting on apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. And so uh, the argument runs, you see, a woman's only ornament is to be a meek and a quiet spirit. So fancy hairdos and jewelry are not right. And I do know of churches which have forbidden women members to wear jewelry. And you're no doubt familiar with some such groups. Well, the answer is then they should forbid them to wear any clothes either. Because it's not only the plating of the hair and the wearing of gold, but also the putting on of apparel. That is, putting on clothes, dress. They should be nudists, if their interpretation is correct. But the meaning of the passage is the real ornament of a godly woman, the thing that she must put her confidence in, is the right kind of spirit before God. Not that dress or jewelry, or a lovely hairdo, have anything wrong in and of themselves. But the woman who puts her confidence in those things rather than in being a godly woman is altogether wrong in her perspective. This is the point of the passage. But it's this kind of uh, really ridiculous misunderstanding of Scripture that leads to so much nonsense. Yes. Virtually not, yes. Pietism is on, or, or modernism is the approach made to campus students. And when you go to these campus evangelical groups, which I do not anymore, they are not interested in any serious talk. 
If you try to talk to them about the biblical answer to the problems they have in the philosophy department or the problems they have in economics or the problems in the history department or anything in the way of a serious doctrinal study of scripture, they're not interested. And they'll sing the choruses that belong to uh, the primary and junior uh, departments of uh, a Sunday school and they remain quite childish. Yes. in it if we have been compelled to go into it. 
I'm not in it. But if I were in it and were entitled to any benefits, I would take them. It's my money after all. And my money is taken year in and year out for a variety of things. I have a right to some return on it, and I might as well take it, because had I had the use of that money, I could have gotten, actually, far better protection than Social Security will provide. So there is nothing wrong with obeying the law there. You've had to pay. Your obedience is compelled to a point, and it's godly that you obey when the state requires it and you have no choice, then it's godly to take it. In other words, if you say, I'm not going to take it, you ought to be logical and say, I'm not going to pay it, and I'll go to prison. It's either one or the other. The, to the acceptance of what? Yes, yes. If a person is in the position where they have to accept it, fine. In other words, once you are in something, you're in it. You can't be, it's like saying I'm going to be halfway married and not all the way married. You're married into these services by the government. So you might as well live with them. But if you're going to stay out, stay out. It's like the uh, man who was unhappy at the last minute about getting married and had cold feet, but he was too far along to back out. So he discussed it with uh, his best man who was horrified and said, you can't back out now, and she's a wonderful girl. In fact, this marriage is everything you've ever wanted, and it's ridiculous to get cold feet. You've got to go ahead with it. So the groom reluctantly agreed to do it, but he said, all right, I will, but I'm not going to enjoy it. <laughs> I like the Jewish proverb, if you're going to eat ham, be sure you get a good piece. Yes. I can't hear you. The relationship of... Yes. Now, let us assume we were back in the United States, say, 1835, 37, thereabouts, and the Manson trial occurred then. First of all, at that time, no one could testify unless they 
believed in the Bible as the word of God and accepted the doctrine of the Trinity. Otherwise, their word was worthless. Now, the only one who was exempt from that was someone who was a party to the uh, case, a civil suit, he was one of the parties, or was a party to the offense in a criminal action. Thus, in such a case, Linda Kasabian would have to be one of the defendants. In terms of the general trustworthiness of her testimony, which would have to be subjected to very rigorous standards, not only by the defense attorneys on cross-examination, but also by the prosecution, to test its trustworthiness. Then she could be granted some kind of suspended sentence or some kind of immunity from the full sentence because of her cooperation. But she would have to be a defendant. In other words, she would have to be liable if her testimony did not uh, prove to be trustworthy so that her testimony would really be on trial together with her own person. But today you grant them immunity and sometimes you have these witnesses back down on you, which very often happens. And that blows the case, or at the key point, they refuse to uh, remember things. Yes? You can test it in a number of ways by confirming uh, testimony. For example, I'll be surprised if they don't have fingerprints extensively in this case. Uh, there are other ways. They are going to have her ex-husband and one or two other people in there to corroborate uh, certain aspects of her testimony. So it will have to be in terms of other witnesses who will at key points have to confirm her testimony. Unsupported, it would not stand in any court today. It will have to be supported. We dealt with corroboration, you remember, some months ago. We have just a few minutes left, and I'd like to share one or two little things with you. I read recently a book by Dr. Robert B. Greenblatt of the Medical College of Georgia, and it is a popularization of a series of lectures he gave at the medical school on certain aspects of the Bible in relationship to medicine. His perspective is extremely modernistic, so it's not a book I would recommend, but there are some interesting things. In passing, he has a chapter on circumcision, and he points out that it has been discovered that uh, 
cases of uh, cancer of the reproductive organs are almost totally lacking with either husband or wife where the husband has been circumcised. The difference there is startling. Then, this very interesting aspect of the Hebrew use of wine. Now, to this day, many churches mingle water and wine at the communion service and give all kinds of mystical reasons for so doing. This was, of course, the practice of the Hebrews. From the earliest days into the time of our Lord and subsequently, they mingled wine and water. And he says, The ancient Hebrews mixed wine and water for their beverage. She hath mingled her wine. And the Greeks and their cultural heirs in Rome embraced this gentle custom. In olden times, pollution of streams and of wells caused frequent epidemics of cholera and dysentery. Slowly experience passed from one generation to another that to drink water plain was hazardous. The addition of wine to water was a safety measure. To ingest mingled wine was healthful. The reason for the initial popularity of wines among the peoples that border the eastern and the northern shores of the Mediterranean have become dim, but the custom continues. With Gallic delight, the French have always maintained that wine is for drinking and water is for washing. The prophylactic measure of adding wine to water was thought to be a sort of myth, a popular practice handed down from antiquity. But Dr. Salvatore uh, P. Lucia has shown that it is a good deal more. Dr. Alloy Pick of the Vienna Institute exposed to various mixtures of wine and water the bacilli that caused cholera and typhoid fever, two diseases transmitted by drinking water, and discovered that in them the bacilli were soon destroyed. Further, in World War II, enteric diseases spread by contaminated water presented a severe medical problem in the Mediterranean theater. An American soldier, John Gardner, was impressed by the fact that the natives who added wine to their water were free from such diseases. Later, in a series of studies at the University of California, he found that red wine possessed antibacterial properties that cannot be ascribed to their content of alcohol, aldehydes, tannins, and acids. Finally, investigations by John J. Powers at the University of Georgia proved that other elements extracted from wines also inhibit the growth of bacteria. That wine has antibacterial power independent of its alcohol is now well established, and the wisdom of the ancient custom of mixing wine with water is substantiated by scientific inquiry. A very interesting little point, I thought. Our time is up now. Let's bow our heads for the benediction. And now go in peace. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. Amen. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.